In the movie Wall Street, multi-million dollar corporate stockbroker Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas, delivers this speech to the stockholders of his company. He says, the new law of evolution in corporate America seems to be survival of the unfittest. Well, in my book, you either do it right or you get eliminated. In the last seven deals I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who've made a pre-tax pre profit of $12 billion. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. This speech was the highlight of Douglas's performance. The performance won him an Academy Award. But I'm afraid it would not win him a place of favor in Luke's Gospel, especially in these chapters, which address the issue of greed. Greed is one of the vices strongly addressed by Jesus in chapter 12, where Luke says, Then he said to the crowd, Take care to guard against all greed. For though one may be rich, one's life does not consist of possessions. Jesus follows this warning with the, that pow powerful parable, so relevant to many of us, of the wealthy landowner with such an abundance of material goods that he had to find more storage facilities. Then very suddenly the rich man dies and comes face to face with the truth that his riches do him no good in the afterlife. He and we cannot bring a U-Haul with us into heaven. The treasure we really need is a relationship with our Creator, a relationship of dependence and acknowledgement that all we have and acqui have acquired throughout our life is gift. None of it truly belongs to us. To assure us that God will take care of us, Jesus reminds the crowd of the care that is given the smallest and weakest of creatures and flowers, the ravens and lilies. If God cares for these, how much more will he provide for each of us? These words and examples invite us to a healthy examination of our use and care of this world's goods. What is it that causes us to want to have more and more? What makes us so afraid of being left without? Certainly we are conscious of the tremendous influence of the culture of materialism on our lives. Our advertising agencies exist to create needs in us, needs that are not real needs, but which we come to believe we cannot live without. Some of us may have lived through wars and the depression or through experiences where we did not have all of the food, clothing, and shelter that we needed. Like Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, we pledge that we will never again be caught without. Many of us are also affected by the pressure in our society to be prepared for any future contingency. We need to have enough money saved for our retirement and for any possible future health ailments. But the gospel message tells us something different. Do not worry about your life and what you will eat or about your body and what you will wear. Instead, seek God's kingdom, and these other things will be given you besides. Sell your belongings and give alms. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not wear out, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven that no thief can reach nor moth destroy. 
In his commentary on this passage, Eugene Laverdiere writes, it is not enough to place one's security in the kingdom which the Father willingly offers. Disciples who work at the coming of the kingdom must sell their possessions and give alms. By reaching out to others, the disciples also provide themselves with an ageless and imperishable treasure, their own place in the kingdom's fulfillment. What does all of this mean for people of wealth? Certainly it is not a condemnation of those with substantial financial resources, but it is a warning, as we will find later in Luke's Gospel, of how hard it will be for the rich to go into the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easy, easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The same can be said, I think, about rich countries. We are all at least required to be mindful of the poor, to know their plight. Then we are asked to do all that we can, not only to alleviate their sufferings, but to be sure that no unnecessary burdens are added to their lives. The U.S. Bishop's 1986 letter, Economic Justice for All, contains so much reflective material on this topic. Let me just offer three sentences for our consideration. From the scriptures and church teaching, the bishops say, we learn that the justice of a society is tested by the treatment of the poor. And again, decisions must be judged in light of what they do for the poor, what they do to the poor, and what they enable the poor to do for themselves. Harsh poverty plagues our country, despite its great wealth. Poverty is increasing in the United States, not decreasing. These burdens fall most heavily on blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans. Even more disturbing is the large increase in the number of women and children living in poverty. Perhaps the following story will serve to demonstrate how all of us, rich as well as poor, must learn to truly care for the needs of each other. There were once two brothers who farmed together. They shared equally in all of the work and split the profits exactly. Each had his own granary. One of the brothers was married and had a large family. The other was single. One day the single brother thought to himself, it is not fair that we divide the grain evenly. My brother has many mouths to feed while I have but one. I know what I'll do. I will take a sack of grain from my granary each evening and put it in my brother's granary. So each night when it was dark, he carefully carried a sack of grain, placing it in his brother's barn. Now the married brother thought to himself, it is not fair that we divide the grain evenly. I have many children to care for me, for me in my old age, and my brother has none. I know what I'll do. I will take a sack of grain from my granary each evening and put it in my brother's granary. And he did. Each morning, the two brothers were amazed to discover that though each had removed a sack of grain the night before, they had just as many. One night, the two brothers met each other halfway between their barns, each carrying a sack of grain. Then they understood the mystery and they embraced and loved each other deeply. What a wonderful story this is of love, thoughtfulness, and generosity. 
Is it too much to hope that each of us could act as these brothers did? Greed is but one of many issues Jesus addresses in these chapters, which mark a part of his journey to Jerusalem. Another issue is hypocrisy. In the opening verses of chapter 12, Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the leaven that is the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisee. Leaven works within dough as a hidden yet powerful force, explains Luke Timothy Johnson. In the same way, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees has the potential to corrupt the message of Jesus, undermining in a way the plan of the kingdom, which he is outlining and explaining to the, to the disciples as they move to Jerusalem. A hypocrite is defined in the Webster's New Universal Unabridged Dictionary as a person who pretends to have virtues, moral or religious beliefs, principles, etc., that he or she does not actually possess, especially a person whose actions belie stated beliefs. Or it is a person who feigns some desirable or publicly approved attitude, especially one whose private life, opinions, or statements belie his or her public statements. Many of the Pharisees, as we shall see, see shortly, were pretending to be true religious leaders of the Jewish people. But in their refusal to really hear and obey the message of Jesus, they were hypocrites, denying Jesus' message, challenging it at every turn. Dennis McBride, in his commentary on this verse, gives us a sense of how insidious hypocrisy can be. Hypocrisy, by definition, is not a private affair, he says. It engages other people in its conspiracy. It pollutes the whole environment, and it cripples right judgment. Hypocrisy needs many disguises, and when it takes refuge in a law or a doctrine or a system, it borrows the wardrobe of the reasonable so that it can, be, it can become theoretically defensible. Jesus makes it clear that the whole masquerade will not go unheeded. The pretenders will eventually be exposed. The secrets that have kept people bound will be disclosed for all to see. So we see the corruptive possibilities of the Pharisees. The hypocrisy is quite obvious in the cure of the crippled woman on the Sabbath. This would be Jesus' last visit to a synagogue. While he was teaching there, the woman entered. She had been badly crippled for 18 years. She was bent over, completely incapable of standing erect. Fred B. Craddock, in his commentary on this gospel, points out that the stooped woman apparently had come to worship. She does not approach Jesus. She makes no request of him, and nothing is said of her faith. But Jesus saw her and called to her, Woman, you are set free of your infirmity. The leader of the synagogue object, objects to the cure being done on the Sabbath. It goes against Jewish law. He forgets, until Jesus reminds him, that he and the other synagogue leaders have no qualms about untying his ox or his ass from the manger and leading it out for watering. His hypocrisy, then, is in holding Jesus to a different standard than he holds himself and his friends. Another form of hypocrisy occurs in what the new Jerome Biblical Commentary calls the Pharisee's stubborn refusal to entertain the Christian message. In explaining the meaning of the unforgivable, unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit, 
Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, Holy Longing, shows us that the original statement is found in Mark's Gospel and occurs right after Jesus exercises a demon. In the Jewish theology of the time, it was believed that only someone who came from God could perform such a healing. Since the scribes and the Pharisees had just witnessed the miracle, it should seem clear to them that Jesus was from God. But in their jealousy of Jesus, they could not admit the truth that they had just seen. They chose to lie about it. Though Jesus tries to reason with them, they remain committed to their lie, denying the obvious rather than acknowledge their jealousy, their own weakness. It is then that Jesus issues the warning that Rollheiser suggests may sound like this. Be careful not to lie, not to distort the truth, because the real danger is that by lying you begin to distort and warp your own hearts. If you lie to yourself long enough, eventually you will lose sight of the truth and believe the lie and become unable any longer to tell the, the difference between truth and lies. What becomes unforgivable about that is not that God does not want to forgive, but that you no longer want to be forgiven. God easily forgives all of your weaknesses and will always forgive anyone who wants to be forgiven. But you can so warp your own conscience that you, can, you see God's truth and forgiveness itself as a lie, as Satan, and see your own lie as truth and forgiveness. That is the only sin that puts us outside of God's mercy. Not because God refuses to extend mercy further, but because you can look mercy in the eye and call it a lie. Hypocrisy invites us to cast a critical look at our own manner of living out the gospel mes message. Being true to ourselves and to what we value and believe is a challenge for each of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus. We are called to live these truths which are, which are spoken in the gospel. Truths such as, do not be afraid. I have not come to call the, the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it love one another. We are assured in this gospel that we have within us the potential, like that of the smallest mustard seed, to help these values grow and flourish in our world. In chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, we were introduced to Jesus' mission statement, which is read from a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. In it, Jesus announces that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Now, as we walk this final journey with him to Jerusalem, we see him fulfilling that mission and inviting the, the disciples to share in it with him. You and I are being invited to participate as well. Chapter by chapter, we see the kingdom of God unfolding before our eyes. It is a kingdom where God is actively involved in the lives of people, showing mercy here and bringing justice there. The kingdom, as we have said earlier, is about reversals, 
upsetting the apple carts of those who think they have everything ordered and under control. As we prayed in Mary's canticle, the lowly are being lifted up and the mighty have been thrown down. Along with the warnings against greed and hypocrisy that we have examined here, Jesus' followers are cautioned that, that there may not be a lot of time for them to repent and make the needed changes in their lives. They are reminded of the disasters that occurred in the lives of those around them, not unlike so many natural disasters we have witnessed in our own world. Similar tragedies may occur in their own lives, and they may only have a short amount of time to prepare. Like the year of grace given to the barren fig tree, disciples may have only a short time to reorder their lives or else. These chapters of Luke's Gospel have been inviting us to an encounter and an eventual commission to enter into the kingdom which God is establishing. The time is ripe. Let us enter. <laughs>